Thinus had always been a good place to rule his kingdom from. It was located on the Nile, so it had plenty of water, its fields produced plenty of food for his subjects, and his subjects were loyal. Perhaps another king would be happy with his kingdom, but not Narmer. He was the king of Thinus, a prosperous town perhaps 400 miles from the Mediterranean up the Nile River. What he wanted was Lower Egypt. This was the prize. The land there was much more fertile than his land around Thinus. His town was richer than the towns in the Nile Delta. And kings from some of the surrounding towns had established a rich trade with nearby civilizations, such as Mesopotamia, which had brought them wealth. The Nile Delta did not have this booming trade and was less wealthy, but it had land that was far more fertile than the land around Thinus. Narmer knew that if he could capture this land, he would be the wealthiest king in the world. He was a great king and a great warrior. Patiently, step by step, Narmer had built coalitions with kings of other cities near Thinus, including Thebes and Abydos. Finally, he knew the time was right. The boats had been constructed, and he and his allies had built up their war supplies. It was late spring. The ground had been tilled, the crops had been planted, and they had begun growing in the fields. The women would be able to irrigate and weed the fields while the men were gone. Narmer and his allies set out to capture the Nile Delta. The fighting was intense, but he knew his gods would not allow the horse worshippers in the north to defeat them. He had made generous sacrifices to his gods, and he had faith that they would stand by him. In fact, this was the case. His army fought mightily. Few people in history have allowed foreigners to invade their land without fighting with all they have. So it was with the northerners. Still, after a long and difficult battle, Narmer realized he would prevail. He was, after all, the greatest warrior in the world. He defeated their warriors on the plains and forced them into their walled cities. It wasn't long before it became obvious that they would run out of provisions. As the summer wore on, Narmer was able to harvest crops from the fields and plunder the countryside to support his troops. One by one, the cities fell and capitulated to Narmer. As they did, his captives grew. Eventually, he would have 120,000 slaves, not to mention 400,000 cattle and 1,400,000 goats. More important, he had all of the land of the Nile Delta. This was land that was so fertile, he could raise three crops a year on it. Narmer, indeed, would become the richest king in the world. Until Narmer, Egypt had been divided into the kingdoms of the north, the Nile Delta, and the kingdoms of the south, like Thinus and Thebes. Narmer returned to Thinus in great triumph. He had his new slaves build a great temple and commissioned his artists to make great works of art commemorating his achievement of uniting all of Egypt. One of these was the Narmer Palette, which commemorated Narmer's victory over the Horus worshippers of the north. This palette showed Narmer wearing both the hajet, or white crown of southern Egypt, and the deshret, the red crown of the Nile Delta. Narmer was truly the greatest king. He would be worshipped as a god. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 5. 
Inventing Culture. We left off our last episode with the Epic of Gilgamesh in Mesopotamia, written somewhere around 4,000 years ago. In this episode, we'll back up and begin about 5,000 years ago, to Narmer, the king who unified Egypt. We know of Narmer because of the Narmer Palette, which was found in 1898, buried at the Temple of Hierakonpolis. We don't know as much about Narmer as we do many other rulers in world history. We're fortunate to know as much about him as we do. Here's what I find most striking about Narmer and the Egyptians. If you pull up the Narmer palette, which was carved in the first Egyptian dynasty, and look at it on the internet, then you pull up Egyptian art from a late period Egyptian dynasty, you'll see the same kind of stylized art that was used in the Narmer palette. In 3,000 years, Egyptian art changed little. Much of the style is the same. The headdresses are very similar, and there are unique Egyptian art conventions that have passed through the centuries unchanged, such as the pose where a subject's feet are both turned to one side, with his or her chest and abdomen facing forward, while the head faces in the same direction as the feet. Narmer unified Egypt in 3150 BC. Alexander the Great conquered Egypt in 332 BC. There's far more change in the style of American art from one generation to the next than there was in 3,000 years of pharaonic rule in Egypt. This is what's most obvious when we first look at the ancient Egyptians. Not only was their art highly stylized and they loved their culture, but they definitely didn't like change. Whereas we value innovation, they valued tradition and feared cultural innovation. Egyptian social structure was rigidly defined. The pharaoh was at the top. Religion was central to everyday life in Egypt, and the pharaoh stood as intermediary between the gods and people. The pharaoh was appointed by the gods to be their instrument on earth. Therefore, the pharaoh was hugely important in Egyptian society. The pharaoh owned all the land in Egypt. He, as with most ancient societies, most leaders were he's, with a couple of important exceptions pose whatever taxes he felt necessary and make any laws he chose. Sounds like quite a tyranny to modern ears, but I've seen nothing to convince me that the average Egyptian felt that they were laboring under the unfair hand of a tyrant. For the Egyptian, it was a two-way street. The pharaoh had been installed by the gods to be the representative on earth. The pharaoh took care of the people and made sure that the gods looked on them with favor. He defended them from invaders and kept Egypt the strongest and most prosperous nation in the known world. It was the pharaoh that maintained ma'at, or the cosmic balance. This included dispensing justice, defending the country, and even invading other countries when it was felt necessary to obtain booty and or slaves. Below the pharaoh was his vizier, then members of the court. Below them were priests, then the scribes, the regional governors, and the generals. Below these were artists, craftspeople, then government overseers. At the bottom, as always, were the peasants and finally slaves. I think that artists found a place higher than most societies at the time, but this seems to make sense given the importance of art in Egyptian culture. Otherwise, I think the Egyptian hierarchy is similar to about any ancient society. Every society, once agriculture became firmly entrenched, became strongly hierarchical. So the Egyptians are a good place to talk about this. 
In Egypt, then, every person had a place in their cosmos and knew it well. I have never seen that there was any significant social mobility at all in Egypt. Such mobility was beyond their thinking. It was a rigid society in which everyone kept their place in the social order. We'll talk more about social hierarchies more when we get to the Middle Ages. No one seemed to complain about their place in the world in ancient Egypt because their thinking just didn't go there. The early Egyptians were very concrete thinkers. Just as in their art, which lasted without great change throughout the entire 30 dynasties of the Egyptian era, Egyptians didn't value change in other areas of their lives as well. They accepted life as it was. There were no great ancient Egyptian philosophers. It wasn't their thing. The priests told them what the gods had decreed, and the average Egyptian in the street never questioned it. Theirs was a world in which all of the deep questions of life had been answered and need never be questioned. I remember George W. Bush being interviewed toward the beginning of the Iraq War, saying something like, I believe that every person wants to be free. I thought at the time that it's dangerous to have a president who doesn't understand the basic lessons of history. Not everybody wants to be free in the sense of American-style democracy. I've never seen a transition to democracy go well from a culture that's been described as tribal, which Iraq was commonly described at the time. These people have never experienced democracy and don't look to it as their preferred form of government. What people from tribal cultures tend to value are good, strong leaders who will guide and protect them. One of the hardest things to do in history is to put yourself in the head of someone who was living back then. You can't do this without understanding the world the people lived in. Those who lived in the ancient world lived in a very different world than we do. It can't be stressed enough that their world was never secure. There was always the threat of foreign invasion. When there is invasion, it often meant that you would be killed if you were a man or, if you were extremely lucky, enslaved. If you were a woman or child, you might look forward to the rest of your life as a slave. Even if you lived in a strong country like Egypt, you could be invaded. Egypt was ruled for a time by foreign invaders, as we'll see. I've been stressing how concrete the thinking of Egyptians was. Again, it's hard for us to get into their heads because most of us don't think like that in the 21st century. But they had a very good standard of living for the ancient world. In Egypt, with the fertility of the Nile Delta, they had plenty to eat, definitely not a given for most cultures in the ancient world. They had an incredibly rich culture full of gods that comforted them. And to the everyday Egyptian, it was reassuring to know that their pharaoh was there to maintain their ma'at. I've never seen anywhere in ancient history or literature, before the rise of classical Athens, anyone expressing a desire for what we would now refer to as freedom. That is, to live in a democracy and not be ruled by a king or tyrant. It was a social order that you were protected by your monarch, and nobody questioned it. In Egypt, there were, of course, bad pharaohs. When this would occur, the Pharaonic dynasty would fall, and another powerful leader would take control and, at least in the minds of the ancient Egyptians, be installed by the gods as their new pharaoh. There were even times when no one was powerful enough to take control of Egypt, and there were a couple of periods of over a hundred years each, known as the intermediate periods, in which there was no ruler of Egypt. Bad pharaohs, civil war, dynastic change, and intermediate periods could cause great hardship for Egyptians. 
but that was the standard for all societies in the ancient world. On the whole, Egyptians had it pretty good. The surplus food, the excess of what farmers produced over what it took them to feed their families, was greater in Egypt than any other country of the time. Again, this was because of the extreme fertility of the Nile Delta. Every year, beginning in June, there were heavy seasonal rains in what we now know as Uganda and Ethiopia, where the Nile started and flowed through. There was also heavy snowmelt in the mountains of Ethiopia. All of this happened far beyond the borders of Egypt, and nobody in Egypt back then knew what was happening at the Nile's headwaters. All the Egyptians knew was that every year in June, the waters of the Nile would miraculously rise and flood the rich farmland of the Nile Delta. When the water receded in September, the Nile would leave a new layer of rich sediment deposited on the farmland. This farmland, then, was richly fertilized every year, and the hot growing season meant that Egyptian farmers could get multiple crops out of their farms every year. All of this meant that there was more food grown per capita in Egypt than any other ancient kingdom. This, in turn, meant that Egypt had a larger section of the population that could be nobility, priests, scribes, generals, officers, artists, artisans, and engaged in other middle-class trades and occupations because there was more food to feed the non-farming classes. The net result for Egypt was a better standard of living than other countries, which in turn led to a richer culture than is seen in the archaeological digs of most other countries of the time. It was this surplus that also allowed for the construction of the pyramids. The Great Pyramid of Giza is, of course, the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that still exists. The first of the Egyptian pyramids was constructed about 500 years after Narmer's unification of Egypt by a pharaoh of the third Egyptian dynasty named Djoser. This pyramid was built about 22 miles south of what is now Cairo. As with all Egyptian pyramids, it was built to house Djoser's tomb. Its construction was something of a technical marvel. The pyramid's architect, Imhotep, was regarded as somewhat of a god for later Egyptians. The pyramid was assembled in six steps of layered stone to a height of 204 feet. This made it the tallest building in the world at the time. This was truly an amazing feat considering their technology at the time and the fact that they didn't enter the Iron Age until perhaps somewhere between 1200 and 1000 BC. Just a quick aside on the term Iron Age. It's sometimes assumed that there was a certain age in the history of the world called the Iron Age. This isn't the case. Different cultures around the world learned to smelt iron at different times. So when we talk about the Iron Age in Egypt, we're talking about a time that's earlier than the Iron Age for the Romans, who learned to smelt iron after the Egyptians. At any rate, Djoser reigned for 20 years. The pyramids were built with hired workers, not slaves, during the months the Nile was inundated and farmers were not working in their fields. This was before cash economies, so the workers were paid with goods. It appears that they were paid mostly with beer. After Djoser, other pharaohs began constructing step pyramids for their tombs as well. Although ancient Egyptians appeared happy with their lot, we'd consider living where mosquitoes were ubiquitous, with no screens on our windows or insect repellent, with malaria common and all sorts of other pests, not to mention Egypt's heat with no air conditioning, to be a life of hardship. The Egyptians had nothing to compare it to and didn't complain. Still, there were many hardships in life, as the fact that they were willing to spend two or three months a year working for beer seems to attest. 
It reminds me of that probably apocryphal quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin, beer is proof that God wants us to be happy. Then there was the fall of the third dynasty. The men who came out on top in the battle for control of the fourth dynasty is the men we now know as the pharaoh Sneferu. Sneferu was very active as a pharaoh. He engaged in several military actions against Egypt's neighbors. Military actions were somewhat different for the ancient Egyptians. From the development of agriculture and the first city kingdoms, most warfare was pretty standard. A powerful ruler would send his army to some neighboring kingdom or country. If successful in defeating his foe, the ruler would claim the kingdom or country as his territory. This is your standard war of conquest. Egyptians, on the other hand, were never interested in conquering territory. They were happy with their kingdom and never really expanded their territory significantly after Sneferu unified Egypt. This difference had to do with their religious beliefs and practices. The afterlife was clearly a matter of obsession for Egyptian pharaohs. They would spend unbelievable amounts of effort and resources in building their pyramids and later their tombs to usher them to the next life. Part of their beliefs included the importance of mummification. A body needed to be properly mummified in order to make it to the next life. The process of mummification was very specific and could only be done in Egypt. This is because it required the hot sands of the Egyptian deserts. Therefore, pharaohs and military leaders wanted to return to Egypt every year lest they die in a foreign land where they couldn't be mummified. The process of mummification was still in its early stages during Sneferu's reign, but as far as I know, he was like later pharaohs and didn't engage in military invasions of conquest after he'd unified Egypt. He did, however, come back to Egypt with great booty and slaves. This is something that successful pharaohs did throughout the almost 3,000 years of the Egyptian dynastic period, but Sneferu did it with exceptional success. Sneferu was quite unusual for an Egyptian pharaoh in that he valued innovation. As previously mentioned, this was not a typical Egyptian trait. Sneferu took the step pyramid that had become established by this time in Egypt and made the first true pyramid with straight-angled sides, the kind of pyramid that we would now associate with ancient Egypt. Actually, Sneferu made three pyramids. He built a traditional step pyramid that he attempted to turn into a true pyramid by filling in the steps. Then he built a true pyramid, but ran into trouble when the foundation subsided, requiring his builders to build the top half of the pyramid at a different angle. This pyramid can still be seen by searching online for the Bent Pyramid. Finally, in 2590 BC, he finished construction on what's known as the Red Pyramid. This is a 340-foot pyramid near Cairo. The Egyptians didn't innovate much, but once someone made an improvement, it tended to stick. Sneferu's true pyramids were such a case, and subsequent pharaohs took to the building of Sneferu-style pyramids. Sneferu's immediate successor, Pharaoh Khufu, constructed the next pyramid. There is no significant innovation in Khufu's pyramid design, but what Khufu lacked in innovation he made up for in scale. Khufu is the pharaoh who constructed the Great Pyramid of Giza. This was a truly massive building project. The pyramid is over 750 feet long on each side and about 450 feet high. It was the tallest building in the world for over 3,800 years and was built with over 2 million stone blocks weighing from 2.5 tons to up to 80 tons. It would have been amazing to see it when it was first constructed. It's truly impressive today, 
but before the weather over the last several millennia took off its finish of white, highly polished limestone, it would have been a true marvel indeed. No one knows for sure how they built the pyramids, but the fact that they were able to complete such a process while building for only a few months each year on their farmer's surplus is truly amazing. The pyramids are a testament to the abundance of the Nile Delta as well as the hard work and expertise of the Egyptian people. From the reign of Khufu, which began somewhere around 2589 BC, to the fall of the Egyptian dynasties in 332 BC, there wasn't a lot more innovation. Most of the pharaohs did well at following the traditions and norms that had been established by the time of Khufu, but I can't pass out of Egypt without hitting a few of the high points. There's way too much history here to cover in the time we have. If you want to do a little research on your own, however, I highly recommend looking into the 18th dynasty. Egypt thrived under the early pharaohs. Numerous building projects kept Egyptians employed and added much to Egypt's rich history. These early pharaohs include Amenhotep I, Thutmose I and II, and then Queen Hatshepsut, who took the throne as regent for her stepson. As many a regent in history, however, she found it difficult to step down once she got used to the reins of power. Hatshepsut began her reign as regent, but soon enough crowned herself as pharaoh. All indications are that she was one of Egypt's better pharaohs. She sent military expeditions to Syria and or Nubia and seemed to be successful. Egypt was evidently very prosperous under her as she engaged in many large building projects, which, again, added much to Egypt's historical legacy. She reigned from 1479 to 1458 B.C. Then, a hundred years later, in 1353 B.C., Aminotep IV came to power. He reigned successfully, and as far as I can tell, without much controversy for the first five years of his reign. Then, in year five of his reign, he seems to have had a religious conversion and rejected the cult of Amun. Aminotep means peace of Amun, and joined the cult of Aten, the sun god. Not only did he join the cult of Aten, he decided that Aten was the only god there was. Thereafter, he became Akhenaten, which means something like Aten is satisfied. As far as we can tell, Akhenaten was the world's first monotheist. Seriously? I've been going on and on about how much the Egyptians don't like change, and Akhenaten is now going to tell all Egyptians that not only do they not get to worship the gods that their families have worshipped since time immemorial, but that those gods don't even exist anymore? Spoiler alert, this may not end well for Akhenaten. Understanding Egyptian history is somewhat tricky. All we have is their records, but it looks like Akhenaten was one of the few Egyptian pharaohs to be killed by disaffected Egyptians while still reigning. The story of Akhenaten and that of his son definitely deserve at least a quick online search as well. Ancient Egyptians had a passion for life. Their attitude can best be described in their tradition of what the Egyptians called the Five Gifts of Hathor. This was a tradition that all Egyptians engaged in, in which they were encouraged to consider the five things they were most grateful for in their life. Gratefulness was a way of life even for the poorest Egyptians, and ingratitude was considered a sin. Though the majority of Egyptians were farmers, there was a larger middle class than in most other ancient cultures due to the abundance of the Nile Delta. Although many of these Egyptians would be considered poor by our standards, they don't seem to have considered themselves to be poor. 
most egyptians lived in modest mud-brick houses with the front door facing north to take advantage of the prevailing breezes and windows in their roofs to help cool the house on hot summer days that could get as hot as a hundred and twenty degrees they had very little furniture there weren't many trees to provide wood along the nile but they didn't seem to complain the old saying that you don't miss what you never had seems to apply to the ancient egyptians as i've said the egyptians had plenty to eat wheat was their staple and they had it in abundance in addition the rich nile delta provided abundant fruits and vegetables including lettuce peas dates apples and nuts they didn't have many herd animals to provide meat but the nile provided fish and waterfowl to eat there also seemed to be sufficient honey to provide them sweets the annual inundation of the nile was very dependable there is always plenty of water to irrigate their crops irrigation canals took a significant amount of work and ongoing maintenance egyptians were hard workers and they never seemed to complain about the work to be done in all the egyptians had plenty to eat and didn't have to worry about the periodic droughts and famines that hit most other ancient peoples perhaps even more important they didn't have to worry as much as other cultures about being invaded which pretty much all other ancient peoples living in the mediterranean at the time did Egypt was generally one of the ancient world's military powerhouses and was invaded less often than other cultures, although it was invaded and ruled for a time by a foreign power known as the Hyksos. No one seems to know too much about them. That's one of the things about Egyptian history. They only recorded their victories and the good stuff. So things like being conquered and ruled by foreigners got very short shrift in ancient Egyptian history. Then there were the intermediate periods between dynasties. But all in all, the vast number of Egyptian citizens during the dynastic period between Narber and the conquest of Egypt by Alexander the Great, some 2,800 years, were secure in their homes. Then there was the beer. Having an overabundance of grain meant that there was sufficient wheat to brew all the beer that was needed. And, by modern standards, that was a lot. Egyptians back then didn't have the knowledge about hygiene and public sanitation that we do. The Nile doubled as a sewer drainage for them. They never seemed to figure out that this wasn't a real good idea, but they knew that drinking water from the Nile could be dangerous. Bring it into beer, however, seemed to get rid of all the giardia and other unwanted pests that no one wants to drink in their beverages, so beer it was. Morning, noon, and night, Egyptians loved beer and drank it all day long. Even their children drank beer. Don't forget about their gods. The Egyptians never did. Their gods were there with them constantly in ceremonies, rites, and rituals. Egyptians loved their gods and attended them constantly. They knew their gods loved them and took care of them, and they took a great deal of comfort in this. Last, but certainly not least, there were their cats. How they loved their cats. They loved their cats so much that it was a capital offense to kill a cat, a level of animal rights still not equal today. Why would Egyptians place such high value on cats? They truly enjoyed their pets and doted on them, it's true. But there's one thing that made their cats very valuable. Most Egyptians back then were farmers and would have had to store their grain from harvest through the following harvest. The abundance of the Nile that made Egypt so fertile made it equally attractive if you were a rodent. Rats, mice, and other rodents would have been a severe problem. Then came the cats, and with them, the Egyptian rodent problem was under control. I've entitled this episode, Inventing Culture, 
Certainly kings and empires that came before the dynasties of the pharaohs had cultures, so it's not true that the Egyptians invented it. But the bounty of the Nile Delta gave the Egyptians more wealth and excess to build pyramids, temples, obelisks, etc. They had enough excess to support a large priestly class that was able to provide Egyptians with the endless pageantry and ceremony that they loved. They not only could support numerous artists, they held them in higher esteem than other cultures. Egyptians didn't invent culture, but they took it to greater lengths than other people had at the time. They led the way, showing the world how a strong culture could define a people. The ancient Greeks, who came after them, would say that it was the Egyptians who showed them the way. Over the next couple millennia, with increases in agricultural yields, kingdoms would amass more and more wealth, allowing people to spend more and more of their time and wealth on cultural pastimes and entertainments like music, dancing, art, religious ceremonies, and clothing. The desire to indulge in culture seems to be a consistent human drive. I wish we were able to spend more time as we continue our journey to now, looking at all of the cultures we will visit along the way. But they're there, each one unique and rich in its own way. Look around at the world today and see all the rich, varied cultures. It wasn't the Egyptians that started this, but they led the way in showing what a culture could do for a people. With their gods, rituals, ceremonies, and thankfulness, studying the ancient Egyptians leaves one, at least me, with the impression of a people who had a passion for life we could do worse than to take our cue from the Egyptians. The Egyptians showed the direction human nature could head when it's allowed to thrive outside of the stress of strife with other peoples and kingdoms, droughts, and famines. In a world in which human sacrifice was still commonly practiced by other peoples, Egyptians developed a largely humane culture in which people seemed to have been thankful, caring, and respectful to each other. Sure, there was a martial culture, and the pharaoh liked to march his armies out to conquer slaves and war booty. And it was still a culture in which slaves were at the bottom. There were also a few people who were killed when a pharaoh died to help him serve in the next life. So ancient Egyptians certainly had a way to go to become what we would consider enlightened. But again, we can't judge people who came before us against our standards. They must be judged against the standards of their contemporaries. By those standards, the ancient Egyptians took a major step up in the ladder that brought us to here. This week's read is The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. This is an unbelievably rich and interesting era of history and deserves a far deeper dive than I've been able to give it in this episode. Toby Wilkinson is a very well-respected Egyptologist and does a much better job describing this amazing civilization than I've done. Enjoy. See you next week.